Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Well, it's a privilege to be able to open up the Bible again with you this morning and look again at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And, you know, even if you've hardly ever come to church before, you've probably heard about Revelation and just all the scary, bizarre, fantastic, science fiction-like, horror story-like stuff that's unfolding on the pages of this, this apocalyptic story about the future and and it's it's easy to kind of be overwhelmed and think what the heck does this mean for us today and what we're doing as we're trying to explore this book is not necessarily provide all the answers because I, I just give a disclaimer I'm not sure that we've got it all figured out in fact I know we don't but I do think that uh, what we're reading here is something that's been a great encouragement to the church ever since the very first days that it was written down and handed to the local churches to read and and gain a grasp of it. What we're reading here is is God's end game. We're reading about God being on the move throughout history, but even more so just bringing it all to a climax at the end of time and how it looks like evil is going to triumph, but there at the last minute, defeat is snatched out of the jaws of of the forces of evil and there's victory, victory because Jesus Christ comes and rules as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're going to see a little bit of that, a glimmer of that, a hint of that today as part of our message, the passage that we're looking at. Now over the years, people have struggled with how do you interpret the book of Revelation? On the one hand, there are folks who said, oh, all this stuff is in the future. I can't wait for it to unfold. It's so exciting. It's so dramatic. It's just, oh, it's so interesting. And everybody sits there and tries to figure out, well, this person, this character in the story, that must be so-and-so politically. Or this person is this religious leader. Or this is this event that took place in history. And, And we try to specifically identify all these events and persons as being specific individuals and almost like we're trying to predict and put all the puzzle pieces together and figure it out so that we know exactly when all this is going to unfold. And that's dangerous because we'll always fall short and it's, it's stuff that God has hidden from us and, and he's just revealing as he sees fit and we need to recognize that. Other people, though, go to the opposite extreme and they say, well, Revelation is not about the future, it's about today. It's about what took place in the first century and what's been taking place in the time since then until finally Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. And so the the battle of good and evil is unfolding in our world right now. And so when we see all these debates in our culture and in our world and over the period of time, these these are all fulfilled. This is the fulfillment of the book of Revelation today kind of a spiritualized view of of the events that are taking place and i think the reason why there's this debate is because on the one hand we do need a future hope that god is going to work everything out and he's revealed that on the pages of revelation but we also have this issue of well what about what does it mean for me today 
What difference does it make in my life today? Why did God give this revelation about the future, these very particular events, all these things that are so described in great detail, why did he give those things to the church 2,000 years ago if it wasn't supposed to help them then? That's a thing for us to wrestle with. So part of the reason why there's this great debate, is it future fulfillment or has it already been fulfilled? Is it to be interpreted historically and literally in the future or is it just to be spiritualized and understand that way? Part of it is the, the issue of what relevance is it for our lives today? That's, that's part of the debate that we're trying to understand and wrestle with. And I just wanna say this at the very beginning, you may agree with me, you may disagree with me, and that's okay, I still love you, remember? So it's just one of those things that I'm gonna put out, and if you'd like to talk about it later, I'd be very welcome, I would welcome the opportunity to do that. My understanding is the things that we're gonna to read today in chapters 10 and 11, these are literal historical things that are gonna take place in the future. I really do believe that. Historical personages that are gonna show up in the future. But I think that they model things that people like us today need to understand as we live in a world that is very anti-Christian and opposes the forces of Christ and uh, the, the, the cause of Christ, the good news of Christ. And this is especially true when you travel to other cultures that are very hostile and antagonistic to the Christian message. When you go to the Middle East in the Muslim countries, when you go to Southeast Asia, when you go to the communist lands that are very atheistic like North Korea and others, it's very clear that those cultures, those civilizations, those governments are arrayed, those religions are arrayed against, they oppose the message of the gospel. And people that believe in Christ and follow him, they suffer for their faith. And this is a word of encouragement and hope for them to still be a bold, faithful witness no matter what. And this is relevant for us as well. Even though we live in a culture that still has a lot of images and symbolism and a lot of ideas that are Christian, in concept, we see the culture slowly changing and sometimes not so slowly changing and becoming more and more hostile and resistant to the message of Jesus Christ that he's King of kings and Lord of lords. We recognize that and we see that. This is a reminder, Revelation chapters 10 and 11 are a reminder to us to be a bold witness, a faithful witness, no matter what opposition we may face. To speak up for Christ and identify with him no matter the cost. To be bold in identifying with him above all else. We need to do that because that's what God expects us to do. A lot of people talk about where's the church when you read the book of Revelation? And it's true that once you get past chapter three, you don't really see the word church named as a word there in the book. And so some people say the church is not there. The church is not present. And I, I think there's, some, there's something to that. But you see the church symbolized in so many ways. You see the, the people of God who are believing in Christ and following him, whether you call them the church or not, they're still God-fearing, Christ-following people there during the days of Revelation. Well, what are they? Well, I personally think they're probably the church as well. They're present during that time. And as I understand that, this these two chapters show us what are, what's the church to be doing? What are the followers of God doing during this time of great suffering and this great opposition that will come in the future? What are we supposed to do? It's a model for us. What do we do today in an anti-Christian world that opposes the message that we have? 
It, the answer is you don't go run and hide. The answer is you don't try to stage a political takeover. Those are not the answers to what we do when we have this opposition. The answers to the dilemma of the opposition that we have is to stand up and be a fearless, faithful proclaimer of God's truth, to be a bold witness, a faithful witness for Christ no matter what, and let the consequences come what may because God is with us. This passage is also going to show that, okay, you choose to be a bold believer in Jesus, a bold witness for Christ, but you got to understand there's sweet parts of that and there's bitter parts of that. And you got to take the bitter with the sweet and the sweet with the bitter. And unless you're willing to do that, you will never be able to be that faithful witness for Christ as well. Something else about this passage, this is one of those passages, these two chapters are some of the most hotly debated sections in the whole book of Revelation. So that's why I'm saying buckle your seats and let's hold both hands on the wheel and let's go for a good ride here. The thing that's, one of the things that's so strange about this passage is it's like in the middle of all these trumpets and things that are being blown, there's this, this discussion that these angels blowing the trumpets that announce the judgments of God, there's this discussion about this, this angel that appears that has a little scroll and John is told to join the vision and he actually goes there and he's told to eat the scroll. What is that all about? And then right after that, it jumps from that story to he's to take a giant yard sick and measure the temple. What is that all about? And then as soon as he's done measuring the yard, the, the temple and all of that, and he's eaten the scroll and received this commission from God to serve him, then it, it just jumps from John and starts talking about these two guys that are sent out by God like prophets of old, and they declare a message. They're God's faithful witnesses. And they have all kinds of power, and uh, we see what happens to them as well. And th- each of these things, John eating that scroll in the temple that's being measured and and the prophets that go out, the witnesses go out and testify, yes, there are things that are happening in the future, literal things that will take place in the future, but they're a model for us today. And they're a reminder to us today about being a bold witness. And I think that's part of the reason why this is all right in the middle of all these judgments and everything. This is what we're to be doing in the midst of this, to stand up boldly and witness for Christ, no matter what, and identify with him. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bible, please, to Revelation chapter 10. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1. This is on page 1033, 1033, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you. And I encourage you just to read along. There's a blessing as we read Revelation together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, there were seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, write what they said, write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the sea and all that's in it and the earth that's all that's in it and the the land and all that's in it that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. 
just as he announced by his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is God's word. We'll stop there and we'll uh, go on into chapter 11 in a few moments. But as John has this vision, he sees this mighty angel coming down out of heaven. And the angel is so large that he... actually straddles the coastline and he has his right foot in the, in the water and his left foot up on the land and he's kind of straddling the two and his legs are on fire and there's a cloud around and there's a rainbow over his head and his face is shining like the sun and he's holding something. He's holding a scroll, probably the scroll that was revealed in chapter four and chapter five that the Lamb of God took from God the Father on the throne. The scroll that had the seven seals that as they broke the seals open and unrolled the scroll and began to read the story, they saw the, 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 the plan of God for the future. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God is the one who has the authority to command the future to take place. He is in command and the future unfolds at his command. We we saw that earlier. This scroll has now been opened up and that mighty angel is standing there holding it. Before we talk about that in greater detail, look at the angel for a minute. How, what does he look like? And he's not the fat little kid wearing a diaper with the, you know, the wings on his back and a bow and arrow. Okay, it's not like that. He's a mighty, powerful angel, very intimidating and frightening, massive in size, legs that are on fire, face shining like the sun, rainbow over his head, clouds around him. All this is a picture of God's presence and glory and power. The rainbow was seen in the the throne room of God in chapter four. The cloud was there as well. The pillar of fire reminds us of God leading the children of Israel through the wilderness after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. All of these things are symbolically representing this angel is coming from the presence of God and has the authority and power of God. And the fact that he's standing on the land and on the sea says he has jurisdiction over everything in creation. All of creation is under God's authority. In fact, the angel goes to swear an oath to make a solemn promise to God. And the promise basically is, is everything that you have said is going to come true right now. It's all going to take place. There is no more delay The last trumpet is going to be sounded and the last judgments are going to begin to unfold and that's what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Revelation beginning in chapter 12. But these judgments are going to unfold. All these things are going to take place and there's no more delay. There's no more stopping it. No more waiting. It's all coming about. The angel swears by God and he says, you're the one who created everything that is in in heaven. You created everything on earth. And you created everything in the sea. And what the angel is trying to solemnly say here, 
so that you and I understand very clearly is that this God who is in charge of history, who has a plan for destroying evil once and for all and establishing his kingdom over all people in all places for all time, for justice and mercy for everybody, for his glory, this is about to take place. He is the sovereign king and creator of everything. And he has the right to do this. John is then told to go up to the angel. I can imagine how scared John felt. Excuse me. I'm wondering if I could take that scroll, please. Maybe it was a little bit like that. Maybe John was a lot bolder. I don't know. But either way, I'm sure he was terrified. He timidly goes up to the angel and he asks for the scroll, asks the angel to give him the scroll, and the angel gives him the scroll. But then he says, I want you to eat it. And John does. And as he's eating it, the angel says, it's going to make your stomach bitter. It's going to nauseate you, upset it. But it's also going to be sweet in your mouth. It's a bittersweet thing that you're going to eat now. Now, this picture of John consuming the scroll, the plan of God, the word of God, the prophecy of God, this, this, this is very similar to what you read when you're in the Old Testament and you're in the book of Ezekiel. You know, the, the story, the, the prophecy of the, the dry bones coming back to life, that, that book of the Bible, and, uh, you know, where they got dim bones, dim bones, and dry bones, all that. But in the beginning of that prophecy, there is a story of Ezekiel being commissioned by God, and he's given a scroll that contains the prophecy, and he's told to eat it. And there's almost like a reenactment of this, and John is being commissioned by a prophet as well. Now, the thing that's interesting is that he's to take this scroll and he's to consume it. He's not just to read it. He's not just to hold it, stuff it in his back pocket, something like that. He's to consume it. And the picture here is, is that as God commissions people to be faithful witnesses, he's saying, you need my word. You need my truth. You need to know my plan because you are representing me and my agenda it's not the agenda of some political party or the doctrinal statement of some church or some other organization. It is my agenda. It is my truth. It is my plan. And you need to embrace that. You need to consume that. And you need to make it part of yourself. You need to internalize it in your thinking and, your, and in your feelings and emotions. And then it needs to come out in your actions and your behavior and words. You're to consume it and make it part of your life. And when John does that, there's two things he notices. One, it tastes very sweet because, hey, who doesn't want the will of God? That's the best in life, right? That's the best in life. And so John experiences that. But as soon as he eats it, it's like that heavy something that you shouldn't have eaten, that real spicy food that comes back to haunt you later. Later. Something else that upsets you and bothers you and troubles your stomach, maybe gives you indigestion or nausea. That's what John is experiencing here. Why does God's will make him feel so nauseated? Because it's full of suffering. Because there's a price. Because there's danger. Because there's persecution. Because it may even lead to death. It's hard to obey God. It's difficult to resist sin and say yes to God. It's, re it's difficult to, to, to say yes to God and do His will. In fact, I bet you that all of us here have something in the back of our mind we know that we should be doing for God, but we're not. 
We know that I really should be saying no to that and saying yes to God. I know I should stop this and start that. I know I should do this and not do that. We know that there's something there and we struggle with obedience. And it's hard because John now has to obey. That's what all faithful witnesses do. But it's also hard and it's also painful and it's also nauseating because of the message. And the message is there's going to be suffering in the plan of God. Yes, he's going to judge evil, but his people will suffer in the process. Yes, he's going to destroy death. He's going to destroy sin. He's going to destroy the devil once and for all. Yes, that's true, but his people are going to suffer in the process. In fact, it's interesting. The word witness in the Bible, it's the same word that is behind our word martyr. Do you know what a martyr is? Someone who nobly dies for his or her cause. They're willing to sacrifice their lives and die for what they believe in. And John is being told here that yes, the will of God is a sweet thing. The work of God is a sweet thing, but there's also suffering, maybe even martyrdom as you're a witness. It may even cost you your life in the process. We need to take heart though. We need to make sure that we don't get discouraged when we think about the cost that's involved because chapter 11 explains the cost even more. John is told you need to be a prophet to kings and nations and languages and people. You need to go out and testify against them and about them. You need to tell them the bad news of judgment, but you also need to tell them the good news that there's a way of forgiveness and mercy available to you. We'll see that at the end of chapter chapter 11 as well. And John, as he's doing this, he, he needs to remember that there's this price, there's this pain that's involved in it. But there's also the fact that God is going to bless and help them because it's not just the bitterness, it's also the sweetness that we have to remember as well. Now, as he is explaining all this and challenging this, I think there's a subtext that we need to remember. You and I are called to be witnesses for Christ, faithful witnesses to him. But we need to remember the reason why we're faithful witnesses is because Christ has already been a faithful witness. We're told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus is the faithful witness. What's he referring to? He, big, the big time that he had to be a faithful witness was the night when he was arrested and put on trial before Pontius Pilate. And as he's standing before Governor Pilate, Governor Pilate is interrogating Jesus and Jesus constantly tells the truth. Are you the son of God you say that I am? Yes, that is what I am. And I'm telling the truth. And Pilate hears that and condemns him to death. And the apostle Paul later says this, you and I need to be bold and faithful witnesses because Christ himself bore a faithful testimony before Pontius Pilate. Yes, it led to his death, but he went to his death because he told the truth to rescue you and to rescue me and to make us the children of God. We have the freedom and power and authority now to be bold witnesses for Christ because Christ was a faithful witness for us. He was willing to die for us because he told the truth. He was a faithful witness for us to save us as well. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, John sees another image here that I think pictures the church. It's important for us to recognize. 
It says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. A lot of details there, 42 months. What's that all about? A measuring stick, a temple? What, what, is, what do these details have to do? Some Christians, faithful Bible-believing Christians, have viewed this as a literal temple that will be rebuilt during the end times in Jerusalem. And it could very well be that. I think that makes sense. But it also could be important for us, let's say it this way, another way of looking at it is this, is that everywhere in Revelation you don't see a literal temple, physical temple on earth being talked about. You see the temple of God in heaven in his presence, in glory. The saints of God are at the temple before the, th- the altar and they're praying for vindication. Remember that from chapter six and chapter seven? So we, we've seen this already and I, I think that's personally the temple that John is being asked to measure. It's a, it's a reminder of the people of God because we see in scripture that God's people are called a temple. The church is called a temple. We see that in Ephesians chapter, chapters 2 and following. We're called the temple of God. We're being built up into a holy house, a holy temple to glorify and worship God with our spiritual gifts. We're told that God lives there and works through us and works in us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that God is building a temple there made uh, out of living stones. He himself is the chief cornerstone. And we're being built into a temple that glorifies and honors God. Could it be that what John is doing here, he's told to measure the temple, the people of God? He's to take this long measuring stick, maybe ten and a half feet long or so, hollow reed, straight staff, and he's to use it to measure this large object. When we read about people measuring things, like in Ezekiel chapter 42 and following, 40 and 42, again, Ezekiel's measuring a temple. Again, as John is like a new Ezekiel talking about the temple of God. And as Ezekiel's measuring that temple, it's very clear that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's, he's saying this temple belongs to me. It's valuable and priceless to me. It's my property. It's mine. Yes, it may be a literal temple in the end times in Jerusalem, but whatever you do to hold your view on that and whatever you say it belongs to and whatever it means, God is clearly talking about the people of God and their worship. And he says, measure the people who are worshiping there. Measure them as well. Don't just, don't just see the corporate body of believers, but see the individual folks that are trusting me and following and measure them. I know them. They belong to me. I care about them. But then John is told to do something that's really strange. Don't measure this one outer courtyard. And that seems kind of weird. What is that about? Well, if you remember from maybe pictures you've seen in a Bible map book or uh, maybe a a story or other photos or pictures, drawings of what the temple looked like, there was the building that was the temple where God dwelt and where people would come and do their worship. And then there were a series of courtyards around it. And he's saying this outer courtyard, don't measure that. Leave that out. In a sense, he's saying that's not under my protection at this moment. I'm going to allow this part to be vulnerable. I'm going to let the nations trample over this. The pagans trample over it. 
So you've got this idea of ownership and protection, but then this vulnerability and trampling. And could it be what he's saying is, I'm going to make sure that you're protected so you'll never lose your faith and never give up in following me. Following me, But I am going to allow you to physically suffer and I am going to allow you to go through persecution. I'm going to let nations trample you. Yes, you'll be true to me and you'll always be mine. You'll never lose your salvation. But I am going to allow you to go through suffering and, and maybe even death. I'm going to let you be trampled. And so there's this, this dual imagery here of what's going on. And again, you may see it as a literal temple in Jerusalem, and that's fine. But I think that temple represents something, just as John is a picture of people receiving a commission from God going out and faithfully serving him. So there's this idea of then there's going to be suffering, God protection, but then a vulnerability, a trampling. That's not a blessing. That's a, that's a dangerous thing. A picture of this God's protection, but yet a trampling is then seen in the two prophets that are revealed beginning in verse 3. And notice that God goes right from the story of the temple to these two witnesses. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. So if you take 42 months and divide it by 30, you get three and a half years about. When you take 1,260 days and you, you, know, you divide that up, you get basically three and a half years also. And so they're, they're the same way of saying the times that he's talking about, this last half of this time of great suffering, the great tribulation. These two witnesses are going to prophesy and declare God's message for these three and a half years, and they're going to be wearing sackcloth, a sign of mourning, a sign of grief, this rough, coarse, uncomfortable, dark-colored clothing that was something a mourner would wear. And he's, they're declaring a message from God, and they're announcing judgment that there's danger coming. Then notice also that these two men, they're described as olive trees and lampstands, this is verse 4, that stand before the Lord. I want to just say this, there's a lot of debate about who these two witnesses are. Some people say they're historical figures that will come in the future, and others say no, they represent the church. Again, that spiritual desire, that desire for a spiritual application today. And I think it's probably right and good to say that these are two historical figures that will come upon the scene. They're wearing sackcloth a lot like Elijah did, a lot like John the Baptist did. And they're, they're prophesying, they're declaring God's message, and they're going to do the kind of things that Elijah did when he called down fire from heaven and destroyed some of his enemies that were trying to arrest and and capture him. And they're going to do the kind of things that Moses did during the Exodus to release the children of Israel. God gave him the power to turn water into blood and bring down hail and other, other storms and such. And so we see them being able to do this. So they're declaring God's message of judgment and they're doing the acts that indicate that. And notice what happens. It says... <clears throat> that if anyone, verse 5, should harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how they're doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them in the blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
They're going to be testifying and doing this and you can just imagine that as people reject their message and then try to attack them, they speak the word and the fire comes out and they're consumed. They can turn the rain off. They can turn water to water into blood. There's terrible drought, water shortages, all these types of things, these terrible, terrible plagues. And you can imagine how popular they would be. Not popular at all. Everybody's trying to kill them. And when they are attacked, they speak the word and fire comes out and destroys the enemies of God, their enemies as well. And the thing is, it says that when they have finished their testimony, the beast, this is the first time we've heard about this guy, this beast, this monster that rises up out of the pit, the bottomless pit, he will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples, of, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment, literally torture, to those who dwell on the earth. So these two men, as they represent God, as they're a bold and faithful witness for him, they have all these enemies who can't overcome them. And for three and a half years, they declare God's judgment. They also urge people to repent and turn back to him. But people refuse, and the judgment falls upon them. And for all this time, there's great suffering until God says their job is done and they are permitted to be overtaken and conquered by this person who's called the beast, this monster that comes out of the abyss, the bottomless pit. He's going to be talked about in greater detail in chapters 13 and 14 and following. But this world dictator, this great antichrist, this counterfeit Christ, he will come upon the scene. We see this in later chapters. And he will attack these two witnesses and overcome them. And everybody's going to rejoice. Finally, the people of earth can do whatever they want without God meddling and interfering in their affairs. They can do whatever they want and not suffer the repercussions from it. No more droughts. No more water being turned to blood. No more fire. All this kind of stuff. They'll be finally free from all this goodness and grace of God and justice of God and truth of God. They're free from all that and they can do whatever they want. And they begin celebrating They actually scorn these men, these enemies of theirs. They allow their bodies just to say exposed out in public for three days, just rotting, decaying there on the street. How disgusting. Refusing to let anybody take them away and bury them. Not only that, they have a party. They celebrate. It's like Christmas and your birthday rolled into one. They give gifts. Isn't it so great? These guys are dead finally. Here, I bought you a present to celebrate. Yay, let's have a party. And it's just the, the wickedness of humanity because of these men finally being destroyed. They think it's something to, to celebrate, not understanding that the story's not finished and the true, true judgment is about to unfold. And while they're celebrating and while they're rejoicing over all of this, it says in verse 11, but after three days, three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered these two prophets. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Before their very eyes, these men are resurrected, and they're brought back to life. 
And not only that, they're terrified by this, but not only that, it says, and then they heard, the two witnesses heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, just like Christ at his ascension. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here they are in this city, as you can read there and kind of figure it out. It's called Egypt and it's called Sodom. Sodom for its rebelliousness and wickedness. Egypt for its bondage and slavery. But it's the place where Jesus died. The Lord was crucified. That city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem had a population of about 70,000 during the time that John is writing. Rome and other cities were a lot larger. A tenth of the city is destroyed in this earthquake as these men rise to heaven. The people are terrified by this resurrection. And they're even more terrified by the earthquake. They're even more terrified that 7,000 people were killed. They were terrified by all these signs and wonders that took place when these men were raised and ascended into glory. But the thing that is fascinating, it says that they saw them as they, their corpses laid on the ground. They saw them come back to life. They saw them ascend into glory. They saw the terrible earthquake and its destruction. And as a result, they were terrified. And it says they even gave glory to God. Some read this passage and they say, well, yeah, when, when you're... When, when the pressure of God comes down and puts the squeeze upon you and you're forced to glorify God, that's what these people are doing. They're being forced to glorify God. I think it's better to look at this as almost like an extension of what we see in the Gospel of John, which John the apostle also wrote. But in the Gospel of John, he points out the fact that there are people who are watching, looking intently like, like watching actors on a stage They're watching the drama of Jesus bringing about salvation, bringing the kingdom of God. And they see these miracles that Jesus is doing and his teaching. They see and witness all of this as it's unfolding and it leads them to a deeper perception. They not only have a visual acuity where they see what's going on with their eyes visually, one of the five senses, but they have a spiritual sight And they begin to understand that there's something going on greater than just feeding the 5,000 or walking on the water or raising Lazarus from the dead. They see something greater that Jesus is the Messiah, the King who meets all our needs, the one who who we desperately need to follow, who we need to surrender to. It's the same words John is using here in Revelation chapter 11 with the sight that these people had. It's not just visually witnessing something. They saw that when the, the bodies were laying in the, in the street. There was a different word that's used to see them resurrected, to see them ascending into glory, to see the other things falling apart in judgment. There's a spiritual awakening taking place in some of the people that are watching. I think this is maybe one place in the entire book of Revelation where there's a, an evangelistic success People are turning to God. People are surrendering to Christ. And they see this. There's a revelation for them, not just because of these witnesses coming back to life and ascending into glory and the judgments that befall Jerusalem, 
but they're also seeing these witnesses laying down their lives. They see the martyrdom of those who are faithful believers. Again, the bitterness is leading to something sweet. There's fruit in their lives. They gave glory to the God of heaven. You can disagree with me on that. That's fine. It's okay. I still love you, remember? It says in verse 14 that the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, these ruling angels. They fell before God and they were saying to him, we give thanks to you. This is a song of triumph. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your saints, the prophets and saints your servants, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. And John sees something else while this song is is going on, this song of triumph. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. This Closing paragraph with this song of triumph is one of the reasons why being a faithful witness for Christ, being a faithful witness for Christ, yes, it's bitter, but it's also sweet. It's sweet because there's victory. And we have the victory of Christ described in verses 14 to 19. We see John, he's watching all this and the heavens open. And the temple itself in heaven opens up. The temple that he's just measured, it opens up. And as the very innermost rooms of the temple, the doors swing wide open, John sees all the way in, the part of the temple that nobody ever got to see except the one high priest, the the priest above all the other priests. He was allowed into that little room once a year, and that was all. But here, now John and all of us readers were able to see into the very throne room of God where he's in control of the entire universe. And inside that room, there's a golden box, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that wooden box, that golden chest, wood covered with gold, inside that box, there's the, the, sta- the Ten Commandment tablets. There are other artifacts from Israel's history indicating the presence and power of God. And on top of that lid, there's a set of angels indicating the presence of God hovering over that one spot on top of that box. It was called the mercy seat, the place where the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled there. That box represented God's forgiveness, his presence with the people of God, and the compassion that he would show to anyone who's covered by the blood of the sacrifice. John is seeing a vision of the mercy of God. Even at the center of all these judgments, there is still a mercy that God is showing and bringing forth. But while all this is going on, John still hears thunders and rumblings of thunder. And there's lightning and there's hail and this storm is coming. 
Because while God is showing his mercy, God is still bringing his judgment. And he has provided a way to escape the judgment. The song talks about that. The song that the elders just explained and sang. God has taken his power and he has begun to reign in a way that he is not doing right now. Yes, God is on his throne. Yes, he is still in control. But he right now is sitting back and allowing evil to do what evil does. And we suffer the consequences of it. But then then John understands that God is going to move forward and begin to insert himself into the events of human history in a way like he hasn't done before. And dramatically, like a rushing thunderstorm, dramatically like the very throne room of God opening up, he's going to insert himself into human history and bring his mercy, yes, but also his judgment. And so he begins to reign. And as the nations are angry and fighting and warring against him, shown by their opposition to these two prophets, God sends his wrath, his holy judgment upon sin. And at that time of judgment, there are three things that happen. All the dead are brought to judgment. Everyone is brought into an account with God. All those who have been faithful in serving him, his servants, they are rewarded for their trust in Christ and their faithful witness to him. And what we're all longing for is the destroyers that destroy our world, that destroy our lives, those destroyers are getting destroyed. Death will die. Evil will be defeated once and for all. All this is taking place because he reigns forever and ever. There's one other little detail I want to point out to you. It's in verse 17. Notice what it says. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. First time I read that, I thought, hey, they forgot something. Must be a typo. Who is and who was and who is to come. That's what we usually read in Scripture, right? How come it's not there? Is it a misprint? Why? Because the future has come. The future is now. We don't have to wait for it to come anymore. What John is seeing is saying that it's come. It's here. The fulfillment is here. The kingdom has come. What we've been praying for every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. John is seeing that right there, right now, at that moment. As God is ruling. It's the victory of God over evil through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain for our sins, who was the faithful witness, who has risen from the dead. That victory is ours. And so while being a faithful witness is a bitter thing because of the persecution and suffering we have to go through, we may lose our lives. We may be martyrs for Christ. There's a sweetness that keeps us going because there's victory. There's a sweetness that keeps us going because there's fruit. There's people that will actually turn to Christ. Maybe not in our lifetime. Maybe not while we see it. The two witnesses didn't see it. But there were people after their death, their resurrection, and their ascension that came to faith in Christ. A large number. There's fruit. And beyond all of that, there's the hope we have from chapter 10 that just simply says this, God is in control right now. He straddles the earth and the sea. He swears there'll be no delay. His judgment is coming. His plan will unfold and it will unfold perfectly. And we can eat that scroll, consume His word and do His will as a witness and we don't have to be afraid. We can have peace because He is the sovereign King 
over everything. He is the sovereign creator and ruler of everything in this universe, every demon, every angel, every storm, every trial. All of it belongs to him. And he's in control. And if he's in control, I can have peace. That's a sweetness that keeps me going through the bitterness of being a faithful witness. Knowing that there's fruit keeps me going when there's bitterness as a faithful witness. Knowing that he's victorious, that he will rule over all, I can have peace about that and not be afraid and be confident and bold as a witness for Christ. The bottom, bottom line is this. Christ is the witness who gave his life for you. So now you and I can be bold and faithfully serving him. He is the one who's coming to make all these things come true. We can stand up and not give up in being a faithful witness for him. Let me pray with you and then we're going to share the Lord's table. All right. Father in heaven, I want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that uh, faithful witnesses, they take the bitter with the sweet. And while there's suffering and persecution and danger, maybe even martyrdom ahead for us because we choose to identify with Christ and boldly testify of Him. Father, I ask that You would help us remember that there's these sweet things too, that You're in control, that You truly, truly are with us and bringing forth fruit. But ultimately, You are the victor. And we don't have to be afraid because You do triumph over evil once and for all. Lord, help us rest in you and not be afraid. May we boldly speak up for you. May we, if we've never trusted Christ, not linger any longer, but depend on him and ask him to save us. Give us the faith to do that for your honor and glory. Awaken our hearts that we would surrender to you. We ask for your blessings on the bread and the cup that we're about to share. May you be glorified as we do this. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.